Some students thrive in online courses and some students struggle. In this episode, we discuss the impact of student characteristics and circumstances on their success in online courses. We also examine strategies that we can employ in our online classes to help all of our students be more successful. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guest today is Dr. Becky Cottrell. Becky is the online and hybrid course development analyst in the social work department at Metropolitan State University of Denver. Welcome, Becky. Thanks for having me. Today's teas are... I'm drinking water today. And I am drinking ginger peach green tea. And I've gotten seasonal with my Christmas tea today. I've got to bring that back. I've got a lot of it up in the office, along with some cinnamon sticks. I beat you, John. I beat you this time. (laughs) I saw your presentation at the OLC Accelerate Conference where you were talking about the research you've done on student outcomes in online and face-to-face classes at an Hispanic-serving institution. Could you give us an overview of what prompted your interest in the topic first? Absolutely. I have been teaching online for more than six years, and I started working with a number of colleagues who really didn't think that you could teach Spanish online, and I took that as a challenge and really wanted to teach a really great online Spanish class. And from there, it got me wondering, who is Taking online classes, I noticed a really big difference between my face-to-face students and my online students, and I wanted to know more about who they were and how they were doing in those classes. And combining that with the fact that we have seen an increase in student enrollments in online classes at our institution and around the country over the last many years, even before COVID, it really seemed important to me to know how students are doing in their online classes and what their grades are and what their outcomes were. And that research becomes even more important when we put it in the context of COVID with a rapid shift online. Many people who were avoiding online instruction like the plague have suddenly been forced to change their teaching modality. Due to the plague. (laughs) We can no longer say avoiding it like the plague anymore. And students are complaining now. I mean, you hear students who don't want to pay Harvard tuition rates for a substandard educational experience in an online class. But are those experiences really substandard? I really want to know that. It's definitely a great question and a really relevant one right now. So this was your dissertation research? It was. So I just finished my PhD in curriculum and instruction. So I did a lot of research about what are student outcomes and what do they look like with different types of curriculum. Can you talk a little bit about where your study was done? Absolutely. So we used a pseudonym for the site. So Russell University, it's an urban university in the Mountain West and a very non-traditional population. So lots of older students, lots of first-generation students, veterans, working students, more students who are married, helping raise families. So not your typical just out of high school students. It's a Hispanic-serving institution and has been for the last few years. How large was the sample that you worked with? I started looking at every class that had online and face-to-face enrollments over two academic years and at a large institution that ended up with 156,000 total course enrollments. 
but the statistical method that I was using doesn't let one student be in the treatment group and the control group. So we had to aggregate students. So I aggregated them down. There ended up being 28,000 students in the study. And from there, I just wanted to look at the ones who were taking mostly online classes or mostly face-to-face classes. So those who were in that top 25% or bottom 25% in terms of online enrollment ended up being 7,765 students over the course of two years. That's a nice size sample. In many institutions, you have some students who are only online students, some students who are only face-to-face. It sounds like there was a bit of a continuum there. Certainly, there were some who were all online or all face-to-face. It wasn't something that I specifically looked at in my study, so I can't pull out specific numbers of that. But yes, we definitely had students in the study who were entirely online and entirely face-to-face. In terms of the online classes, were they developed with the assistance of instructional designers? That's a really interesting question, and the answer basically is, I have no idea. It wasn't one of the things that I looked at in the study. I was looking more at student characteristics than course characteristics. That said, Russell University has a really robust online offering. Over the last 20 years, they have increased their online course offerings a great deal, and particularly in the last five years, have really ramped up their efforts to develop courses and have really excellent Quality Matters certified courses at the university. That doesn't mean that all of our courses meet that standard, but it has been an institutional goal and one of the things that they've worked on but I was just looking at student demographics when I was looking at this study. Partly that's hard because we have students who are taking maybe 20 different classes, and so they could have had one or two that were developed through an instructional designer, but the others may not have been. So no real way of knowing. The outcome you were looking at specifically was student success in the course? Yes, I measured student success in two different ways. The first way was looking at student grades, which we measured by a course GPA that was aggregated based on their course enrollments. And the other one was withdrawal rate. So what was their percentage of withdrawals during the courses that they were taking during the two-year sample? One of the things I found really interesting about your study is that you use a methodology that took into account sample selection in a way that so many education studies don't. And you suggested the reason for that, I think, when you said that Your online students were quite a bit different than your face-to-face students. Could we talk a little bit about that issue of sample selection in studies of this nature? Absolutely. This is a really common problem in educational research, that you have something called selection bias. And I think that those of us who teach are aware that our students who enroll in 8 a.m. classes are really different than the students who enroll in 2 p.m. classes. And we see some of those similar things with online classes versus face-to-face classes. It's just a really different group and personality of those students. And what happens is students get to sign up for their own classes. There's nobody randomly controlling them into different classes. They pick the ones that they want with the teachers that they want at the times that they want and in the course modality that they want. And we don't know why. So that's part of what I wanted to look at in this research is what students are enrolling in online classes and what students are enrolling in face-to-face and why. Is there a balance between the groups? Are they really similar or are they really different? And so what I found was that there are different students who are enrolling in online classes versus face-to-face classes, which is not unexpected. As an example here, we found that students who are working full-time were more likely to take online classes, which makes sense. They need to take the online classes because it fits better with their schedule and has greater flexibility to match their work schedule. But at the same time, what impact does that have on course outcomes? Does it mean that they are really motivated because they have a full-time job, so they're going to get better course grades? Or does it mean that they are working full-time and they're managing a family, and if something comes up, they're going to put their schoolwork to the side because other things are more important? 
So selection bias and the way that students self-select into classes really changes how they might perform in those classes. Which brings us to that question of, are those student course outcomes based on the online course modality, or are they based on the characteristics that made students choose the online course modality? When you didn't control for student characteristics, what did you find in terms of comparing the outcomes in online classes with face-to-face classes? One of the things that was really interesting here is that those students who were taking 75% or more online classes actually had significantly better grades in their online classes than they did in face-to-face classes. So the online course GPA for those students taking 75% or more online classes was 2.55, and for those taking face-to-face classes was only 2.34. So definitely a significant difference and higher grades in online classes, which is not what I was expecting. Then with regard to withdrawal rates, we had totally different results, which is that there was no significant difference in withdrawal rates among the two groups before balancing for those 15 different student characteristics. Can you talk a little bit about what those 15 characteristics were and how you chose those? Absolutely. I used Tinto's student integration model to look at what characteristics he felt contributed to student success and persistence in the institution. And so I ended up with 15 different personal characteristics related to students. So a lot of demographic characteristics, age, race, gender, those sorts of issues. We tried to get academic performance through GPA, transfer status, transfer GPA, ACT scores, SAT scores, those sorts of things. We also tried to determine institutional commitment through if they had a declared major. And the one area that we would have liked to have more but wasn't available in an institutional data set was something related to like computer literacy and other skills that were related to performance in an online class, but it just wasn't something that was available. So 15 different characteristics, including those demographics, academics, and just connection to the institution. So you were using a nearest neighbor matching with, I believe, a two-to-one ratio? Yes. Could you describe that perhaps for our Absolutely. Listeners? For people like me that have no idea what that even means. <laughs> so the methodology that I used was kind of an interesting statistical method called the propensity score analysis. And basically what a propensity score analysis does is matches people who are in the treatment group with people who are in the control group. So it creates kind of an artificial match to say, this is now one person, and what would have happened if they'd been in treatment or if they'd been in control? So it takes all of those characteristics and assigns them a score, and from there can divvy them up and say they are likely to be in treatment or control, and it recreates those groups. And that matching allows them to determine the probability of them being in treatment or control groups, which essentially controls for the characteristics that you've loaded into the model. To simplify it a bit, you're comparing people who are similar in characteristics and examining the outcomes when adjusting for those characteristics. That is a great explanation. Very concise. And the idea of the nearest neighbor two-to-one matching is basically that for each person who's in the online class, we found two matching people in the control group. So we tried to keep as many students as possible in the final outcome. And there have been at least some studies that have found one-to-one or two-to-one gives you the best estimates with the least amount of bias from that procedure. Absolutely, yes. When there's a one-to-one match, you get a lot better balance because you can obviously find a matching student in the online or the face-to-face class that is the best fit. But when you start matching more students, it's not quite as good of a fit. So you don't deal with balance quite as well. And speaking of balance, I'm going to jump in and tell you about this right now, just because I think that's interesting. And one of the great parts about propensity scores is 
this idea that the first thing that a propensity score model does is say, are these groups the same? Are your online groups the same as the face-to-face group? And what we found out is that they aren't. And I thought this was a really interesting piece of my research. So they were totally different, different enrollment patterns. And there were about eight characteristics that were significantly different. And this is where I think it's so fascinating. So we had more part-time students in the online classes, not surprising, but they had higher ACT scores, more transfer students, more credits taken. They were more experienced students. They had higher GPAs. They were more likely to have a declared major and they were all older. So the better students were taking online classes, which is so fascinating to me and explains ultimately why we had higher course grades in our baseline data. Students who are better students were taking online classes, where those beginning students who were younger, who had less experience, were taking the face-to-face classes. So I just thought that was fascinating, that it was imbalanced, but it really gave a good picture as to why we were getting the outcomes we were at the institution. It'll be interesting to have some follow-up studies related to COVID-19 around those ideas because just anecdotally, students who are newer to being online or just newer college students have struggled quite a bit with online learning or complain about it or just don't know how to manage their time and those kinds of things. And it seems related to the kinds of findings that you've had. Absolutely. And I think across the country, we're seeing that those upperclassmen stay enrolled and are succeeding through these COVID transition, but it's the underclassmen who are taking a gap year or who are failing out of classes. So I think that these results speak to that, that those students maybe aren't prepared for an online class. What happened to your results in terms of student success when you corrected for the sample selection? This is so fascinating. After controlling for that balance, We had originally had in our baseline data better scores, better course grades in online classes. And after controlling for those characteristics, there was no significant difference in course grades between online and face-to-face courses, which is awesome. It's really exciting to know that maybe we're doing something right. And so that was really exciting. But at the same time, our baseline data had said that there was a non-significant difference in withdrawal rates. But after controlling, we found that there was a significant increase in withdrawal rates and online classes had higher withdrawal rates by about 2% than face-to-face classes. I think that's a fairly common result that online students often have much higher withdrawal rates than face-to-face classes. Right. The grades are really promising, and I'm glad to know that those course outcomes are doing well. But when we start looking at withdrawal rates, it brings up some really interesting questions about how are we engaging students and why do we have bigger withdrawal rates in those online classes. I was just going to ask if your research led you to believe anything about those results, if it was a particular characteristic or a teaching method, or are those just new questions that we need to continue asking? I think they are mostly new questions that we need to continue asking. But there are some implications in the literature that I think lead us to some possibilities here. One of the big ones is that sense of community and connection in online classes. Students really want to feel that. And if they don't, they're more likely to drop out from those classes. And so it's definitely a consideration as we're looking at more online classes is how are we building community and how are we engaging with our students in that online space to make sure that they're able to connect with their instructor and connect with other students in the class. I think that another factor that we see is who are taking these online classes. So students who are more engaged with families, they're older, they're working full-time, therefore taking fewer classes. I think that those factors can contribute to their persistence or not in these online spaces. So definitely some of those issues are there and we know what some of those reasons are. And I would love to do some future follow-up research on what really is happening at this particular institution. 
I know you had also mentioned high impact practices and trying to incorporate more of those, like inviting students to do research and things. Wondering if we have any data on how prevalent that might actually be in online learning compared to face to face learning. How often are those opportunities actually there? I totally agree. It would be so interesting to look at what are those impacts and what is the prevalence of those high impact practices. I think there's a lot of research about what we can do to do better. And I think that even from this research that for my dissertation was almost obsolete by the time I defended my dissertation because COVID happened. But one of the things that we can be doing better, and I think we have started, is providing greater access to student services in those online spaces that students maybe before didn't have access to advising, registration. They didn't have a good way to connect with people who are on campus. And I think so many of our institutions have had to move towards a much better practice with that when we went all online for months, they had to figure out how to do that. And I think that we'll keep that around and providing better services to students. And that will definitely help keep them enrolled in classes and keep them from stopping out and persisting at the institution. Nothing like a pandemic to really force some innovation, right? (laughs) It's true, but it's been so much fun. I love seeing that innovation and how we're benefiting our students. I also love seeing a little more attention towards online teaching we're the ugly stepchild before, and now everyone is excited to learn about this new thing and how they can do it better. It's gone from being an ugly stepchild to a savior in some way. Yeah, absolutely. Think about the last pandemic with the Spanish flu. What happened to their education at that point? We didn't have online learning. Did they have distance education? What even happened with that? If this had happened 20 years ago, it would have been a completely different experience with a lot of colleges just completely shutting down or moving to some type of correspondence class instruction. Which I don't think would have gone well. <laughs> Which would have not have gone very well. No, definitely. 20 years ago. I think that right now we can say we have similar course outcomes in online and face-to-face classes. But 20 years ago, I would have been one of those students who was protesting at Harvard about paying tuition for a substandard educational experience. <laughs> what are some of the things that you would recommend doing to help build class community? I'm so glad that you asked about this because this is one of the other personal interests that I have. I've been working with a faculty learning community for the last two and a half years around developing instructor presence in an online class. And so I love talking about this. I think that there are a lot of ways that we can really develop connections among instructors and students and also among students. So one of the best practices that I've seen is making sure that teachers have an opportunity to connect one-on-one with their students, whether that's sending out an email a time or two during the semester or requiring students to meet with them at the beginning of the semester or at midterms throughout the semester to be able to develop that one-on-one Zoom connection to just be able to have a little bit of FaceTime with students. And I think that works really well. So making sure that there is an opportunity to connect on a human level. When we teach online, we tend to be really text-heavy and dry. And taking that human element that we love in a face-to-face class and pulling it out in an online space is so valuable for students and really helps them to connect with each other and with their instructor. It's one of those inclusive teaching practices that we do really well face-to-face, but is a little bit harder to do online. And if we're intentional about it, it can happen. In terms of developing community among students, I think that as much as there's resistance towards group work, I think that you can intentionally use it to develop community in your classes. And this isn't just a, hey, you should write a paper together and divide up the work. It's intentionally using that as a community building opportunity and letting students know that that's your intention is you want that to be community building. So one of the things I've always done in my Spanish classes is have students meet 
in small conversation groups once a week to have conversation practice with each other. And there's always a little bit of resistance and students aren't so sure that they want to do it, but I have them fill out a survey to let me know what time they're available. And it's just a group of three students. They meet every week and they have a great time talking with each other and get that oral communication practice they need. It also ends up being one of their favorite parts of the class. They develop connections with the other students. And I hear all the time about students who actually meet in person and go out for coffee. I had one student who was taking a class from Florida and another student who was in Denver. And the Denver student had to go to Florida for something and stopped and went to go visit the Florida student in person. They went and hung out together. So I think there are just really interesting human personal connections that can be made. And leaving space for that to happen is so important. I think we get too focused on academics and lose those moments at the beginning or the end of a class where we spend a few minutes talking about nothing or the weather or the football game last weekend. And leaving that space in an online class and making sure that you have some space for that really helps to develop those connections. I definitely have experienced that this semester with my students who have had persistent groups all semester. They have said multiple times how helpful that has been for them. And they just did a reflection activity and almost every single student said, oh, being in those groups was the best part, which you never hear about group work, right? (laughs) But they got to know each other and they had support through the class and use that as a way to help each other out with the course material. Absolutely. I love that. It's so amazing when students can get that connection and really work together. I had a similar experience in my online class where I had students work on podcasts. And the first time they met generally is when they met in small groups to have these conversations and recorded them using Zoom. And they were supposed to be five to 10 minute podcasts, but many of them ended up being dramatically longer because essentially they were getting to know each other. It was kind of nice to see that sort of engagement and that interaction where they were getting to form this community. It would have been nicer if they had recorded just a shorter segment of it, but I did get to listen in on some of those initial meetings, and it was an interesting experience. And I agree. I assigned my students to only speak for 30 minutes, and they only had to record 15 minutes of that. But the timer would tell me how long they'd been in, and many of them would be in there for 45 minutes to an hour, sometimes an hour and a half, that they would just spend that time together practicing and talking. And it was great. It was just fun to see that connection that they went above and beyond what we'd asked them to do. So dropout rates were something that you mentioned that your research pointed to. This was one of the biggest issues that we needed to be thinking about in terms of online education. So in addition to instructor presence and helping students formulate community, do you have any other recommendations for faculty or instructors to help mitigate that or get students to stay, to retain students? Absolutely. So we've talked about Access to student support services, building a community, some of those high impact practices that we don't always think about in online spaces is making sure that students have the ability to collaborate with faculty, like on a research project, especially at a Hispanic serving institution. It's a culture where those connections are really important and making sure to provide those to students so that there's an opportunity to connect with faculty on working on something meaningful is really important. So as faculty, we can make sure that we're selecting students when we're thinking about TAs, research assistants, make sure that we're thinking about some of our online students as well and see if that might be a good fit for them. And one of the things that I also think about in terms of improving retention is this connection and relationship between the faculty and the student is so important. But in order to do that, we know our faculty are overworked and underpaid. And to make sure that there's institutional support for faculty is really important. 
And so making sure that there's access to instructional design and pedagogical training through some of the resources available at the institution is a big deal. Making sure that there is a collaborative opportunity for faculty to work together and share best practices and generally just supporting faculty as we hold on to faculty, it gives them more bandwidth to hold on to their students. So institutional support is a really big deal to benefit our students as well. And one that we can't underscore enough when faculty are feeling really strange. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Not in 2020. And here we are. I don't know about other institutions, but we're being furloughed. And so we're asked to do more and have fewer resources. While being at further risk in terms of employment risk, as well as all the health risks out there. Oh, there's so much going on. You mentioned forming connections between faculty and students, and one way of certainly selecting students to be TAs and so forth. But what are some of the things instructors can do in their courses to help form those connections within online classes? One of the things that we've really found that is helpful is moving away from a really static discussion board. We see a lot of classes where instructors say, tell me three things that you learned from this reading, or what are three of the five methods that are used to do whatever it is. And those are really boring discussion boards and do not foster community. But asking questions that really encourage students to engage in a debate and a conversation and teaching them how to engage with each other appropriately and respectfully in an online space is really important. So asking them to solve problems together, asking them to work together not shying away from difficult conversations. This election year has had a lot of challenges and engaging with those in a student class in a way that allows them to bring in their own unique perspectives helps them to connect. Some of that might be through a discussion board. Some of it might be through a tool like Flipgrid that allows you to have students have a video discussion where they get to record a short video and then reply to each other. That really fosters that sense of connection and community in an online space. So allowing for that to happen is really important. We can move away from a boring discussion board to either a better discussion board or some of these other tools that foster community. Flipgrid or VoiceThread or other similar tools offer a lot more possibilities for connection and hearing each other's voices and hearing their instructor's voice, I think, should help to create that sense of community more so than just reading text on a screen. And videos also, that if we are recording videos, we can see the instructor, we can see the other students having a face to put to a name and having just a little bit of personal information, knowing that I smile and laugh and I am an engaging person, I think helps to connect with the course. Humanizing the instructor is a phrase that's often used. Letting them hear you, hear your voice and your sense of humor, letting people know you as a person rather than just as the author of these words that show up on the screen all over the place is helpful. And humanizing the other students in the class. If it's just a name, it's really easy to not really think of that name as a person. The more you see and hear, not only as an instructor, but also fellow students, I think can be really beneficial. So I think that students eat up the media when it's available to them. Absolutely. And helping them make connections to their own life in their discussion. If you're going to have discussion boards, one way of doing it effectively might be to have them make connections where they draw on what they're learning and make connections from their own life and experiences and share them, which also is a nice way of forming that sense of human presence in the classroom. Absolutely. With a PhD in curriculum, I feel like I hold in my two hands two different things. So in the one hand, I have the curriculum and the course objectives and the aligned assessments and all of those things. And I think they're so important. In my other hand, I'm holding on to the importance of people like Bell Hooks and Paulo Freire and that reminder that we need to be 
transgressing some of these lines of our existing education and decolonizing our educational experience and humanizing it to make sure that we're making real personal connections with the content, with the instructor. And so those are the two things that I carry with me as I'm working in my own classes and as I'm helping faculty develop their courses is how do you balance those two things that it's so hard? And I think in online classes, we do really well with the alignment and the course objectives and the assessments. And sometimes that humanizing part feels like it falls by the wayside. But they're not necessarily substitutes. They could be complementary. If you design assignments well, where they're engaging in these authentic interactions while achieving the learning objectives, it's more work trying to design that. But there are some things you can do that can work really well. I think there are wonderful faculty out there who are doing really great things. Those are just the two things I try to always carry with me to make sure that I don't leave one of them behind. I think it's really important to think about those two. So it's a nice reminder. And I think actually it's a nice way to wrap up the conversation because it's the two things to keep in mind as you move forward. (laughs) Having those little takeaways at the end is always helpful. (laughs) So we always wrap up by asking, what's next? For me, I am really excited to dig into some of this qualitative side of things that we've talked about today. As I said, I love that hard quantitative research, but I also am really interested in the humanizing element of it and that instructor presence. So I've been working with this faculty learning community for the last two and a half years, and we have developed an online instructor presence self-evaluation tool that we are presenting at OLC in the spring. So we're really excited to be able to share that with some other people about how we connect with people and how we engage in our classes. So we're excited to move forward with some of that and just see what is happening with COVID. How has that changed things and how might we rethink how we're teaching online? Is this something that people would be using in a longitudinal basis to track how their classes evolved or is it just used in general as an instrument to share with faculty? What we've intended it as is a way for people to self-assess. So we didn't want it to be a rubric. We don't want it to be point-based. We wanted it to be conversational and a way to go in and reflect on your own teaching and consider ways that you could improve. And so absolutely, the way that we've designed the tool is it has a what are my strengths and what could be improved area on each of it. And so it would be really interesting to come back and say, you know, I did this last semester. What does that look like this semester? What am I changing? How am I improving? So I think it absolutely could be used longitudinally. The tool that you're talking about sounds really great. So I hope we can have you back so we can talk about that in the future. I would love to. Only if I can invite a part of our faculty learning community. It was a group effort. It's one of those things that we couldn't have done it without each other. We've just been each other's support system. And when we first found out that our institution was going online, we had a meeting scheduled for that Friday and we talked about canceling it. And everyone's like, no, these are the people that I need. And so we all met that Friday that we were moving online and we haven't seen each other since in person, but we were just that group. We're like, no, I need my support group. So I would come back and talk about it, but only if I can bring my FLC with me. (laughs) It sounds important to do so. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a great conversation and we look forward to hearing more research from you, Becky. Well, awesome. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure to visit with both of you. Thanks for joining us. We're looking forward to talking to you again. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.